Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you by Workman Forensics. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining me today is Michael Ulver. Michael is the CEO of Pacific Strategies and Assessments, a global risk consulting firm offering due diligence, investigative, and advisory services. He has been a corporate investigator for 15 years and has acted as an investigative responder on matters in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Michael has advised numerous multinational companies, regional government entities, banks, and high-net-worth individuals. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. Thank you for having us. So for this episode, I would really enjoy discussing um, just some similarities and differences when conducting investigations outside of the United States. And maybe my, uh, maybe more so my experience in the U.S. versus your experience everywhere else. But let's first start with when did you decide that you wanted to be an investigator and what was your path that led you to what you do today? So I, uh, I still don't think I've decided that I wanted to be an investigator. Um, I think I, I still need to work on that one. Um, the, uh, I started off, basically, I, I was a regional specialist. I, I spent some time in the Middle East. Um, I did some, some advanced degrees in, in Middle East stuff. And, uh, and then when it came time to get a job, the people that were hiring were building uh, intelligence collection networks across the Middle East and North Africa. And I kind of slotted in because I could, I could sort of turn that into something. And, and so I flew out to Dubai and I, I arrived here, I think after, after being in, in region for a little while, I arrived in Dubai in 2005. Um, and it turned out that building information collection networks for uh, due diligence became for investigations, came for advisory work. Uh, and it, it just having a really good network was, was really crucial. Um, developing a lot of skills, and then I've just kind of been developing, been developing that ever since. Um, went to work for uh, some people here in Dubai that uh, on, on the police side of things. Um, then went to work for for Kroll um, as a was a director in their Middle East practice, um, and now run PSA, um, which has offices East Asia across the Middle East, um, you know, a lot of China, Southeast Asia. Um, South Asia, Middle East, Africa um, is, is really our sort of core patch. So, and we within that we do a lot of investigative work. Um, so it's been something that just kind of, it's just a, a unique problem set. Every every day is different. Every case is different. It keeps me really engaged in terms of of the the challenges of doing these and doing these cross borders and and doing these in really difficult spots sometimes. Um, so I think that's that's led to me just kind of being where I am today. Um, but I don't. I don't ever remember making a conscious choice. It was more of like, hmm, that's that's very interesting. I'll, I'll do that for like. Let's see where that goes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'm. I am kind of curious. Uh, were you? I guess as a. Um, I was born in Texas, raised in Texas, and then I didn't go far to school. I went to Oklahoma, so not, not very far. So, were you always interested in going to school overseas and like working overseas, or just kind of the same thing? You just kept exploring and discovered, and and now you're where you are. So, uh, so I I grew up overseas mostly. Um, so I'm I'm from Eastern Kentucky. I'm very proud of that. Um, but, uh, almost my entire life has been spent in, in Asia, Africa, and, and with a little bit of time in Europe, um, uh, and, and obviously professionally in the, in the Middle East. So I, 
Um, I think one of the reasons why it was it was easier to to start doing investigative work abroad was it, I was just very comfortable um, within an, an international environment, um, being the only only representative of my culture in in a, a room is is something that I'm quite used to or was quite used to and and now I'm even more used to. So it was something that was a sort of a continuance. Um, Whereas I think going going to the United States would have and and working in the United States profession would have been very uh, would have been a bit of a steep learning curve for me. Um, whereas I was already familiar with how things work in in quite a few different places outside. Okay, that that makes sense because I just can't. When I was working for um, the FBI and my, I had a two year appointment as a student trainee. So as that was ending you know, I kind of looked to going other places and I looked at going to like Iraq at the time because of when all of that was happening, um, just this time in my life. And then also Mexico city. And I didn't do it. <laughs> Sometimes I'm sad. I didn't do it, but I mean, it was, it was going to be quite the, the leap for me. So that, that makes sense. And that, what a unique experience that you had to be able to, to keep doing that and, um, and serving in all of those areas. So, okay. So the company that, um, you're with now Pacific Strategies and Assessments. You guys provide, and you talked about a little bit due diligence and then investigations and advisory. So I want to kind of talk about due diligence and then also investigations, obviously, since that's um, the the topic of our podcast. But when it comes to due diligence, I have realized just over the course of my career that this can have various meanings depending on the situation. So what do these services look like for your firm? A hundred percent. And and thanks. That's a really valid, valid starting point. Um, So uh, I I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with, with clients and we get all the way to the end and and we realize we're not talking about the same thing. Um, The, uh, so for us, due diligence is, is really, um, is really twofold. So we, we support a lot of multinational companies who are engaged outside the United States um, in their third-party due diligence, and that's that's you know something you, you'll hear me talk about it as process-based due diligence. It's we, we've built a very robust process that we run your third parties through. Um, these would be your agents, your distributors, um, in order to identify if there's issues of concern specifically with bribery and corruption. Um, so that's that's you know that's so the process-based due diligence really is, it tends to be global programs. So we'll run things, you know, for clients in Brazil and Mexico City and uh, Mongolia and, you know, a lot in China, a lot in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, and there's a, there's a really unique challenge. You need a lot of really smart people to be able to do this at scale. Um, but then when you, you go to the flip side due diligence, which is what we do for a lot of um uh, some uh, some of the same clients, but some also some different clients, where it really is a a larger, more um, analytical piece of work. So uh, that due diligence tends to be uh, looking at the pre-mergers and acquisitions, the the purchasing of a company, or before you purchase a company, you really want to kick the tires. You want to cover the anti-bribery and corruption and, and issues of concerns with that, but you also want to look at you know its its placement within power structures locally, you want to look at um, the reason why they, you know, the, the company may want to sell. And that sort of slides across the continuum into a little bit of investigations because we'll, sometimes we'll be able to be overt and we'll do some interviews, overt interviews with people that have knowledge of the company. 
Um, it does the advisory because we'll, we'll do some, uh, some very discreet interviews around. We'll also talk to uh, key figures in order to understand where, where the, the principles of this company that you're engaging with sit within the power hierarchy. Um, and then we'll, we'll try to sort of advise the client based on that information, which direction to, to take this in um, or, or things they may want to be more sensitive to when approaching this. Um, so that's really the sort of the space that we're in, um, uh, the process based to the, the uh, advisory style due diligence. So when you're performing either process based due diligence or this more advisory, you mentioned interviews. I, I'm curious, you know, in, in the United States, we have all these public records databases and the databases will pull you know, and like my firm, we only use the public information ones, not the kind of shady ones, but or, or things that would give us inadmissible information in court. So I'm curious, in the areas where you're helping clients, what types of resources are available? Like I said, you mentioned interviews, but what else is kind of part of that um, process? And are there things like databases that help you um, navigate or gain information that way? A hundred percent. So... Uh, a lot of people joke that, that basically our, our jobs wouldn't exist if the internet didn't exist. Um, there's an increasing push in, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it for, you know, most American investigators are familiar with uh, Central and South America records. A lot is online. So corporate, uh, corporate registrations, ownership, some litigations, um, sometimes proud of that, the, the, the global push is really to sort of push this online. So, uh, for example, India, you may or may not want to you know, think about this, but their corporate records are, are freely publicly accessible. Um, litigation records in most of the major population centers, um, I think the top five states, and increasingly population, um, that's all electronically accessible information. So for the process-based due diligence, it's, it's building that process is uh, trying to hit uh, corporate registration, um, so identifying ownership in UBO, um, sorry, ultimate beneficial ownership, litigations to make sure that there's no um, significant litigations against the company that you're looking at, uh, and then uh, public media, so English and local language, uh, just to see if there's any overt issues of concern that have made it out in the public domain, any previous scandals, allegations of bribery, corruption, things like that. Um, that That is, you know, so the process to, is to do your best in each of the jurisdictions to the extent possible by the records in those jurisdictions to pull as much information um, that's relevant to that. So you really want to tick each of those, those boxes to the extent possible. As it slides across the continuum, you can start doing things like human source interviews. So, um, you know, for example, uh, in Qatar, uh, litigations research is, is really not, not feasible. Um, but what you can do is it's a very small environment is you can speak to uh, prominent legal authority there or several different prominent legal authorities there, um, you know, lawyers. And you can say, hey, have you ever heard about these individuals being involved in the instances of litigation? Um, it's not as effective, but within a small jurisdiction, it's sort of a best efforts that you can do within that frame. Um, and again, we're, we're very sensitive to. Uh, keeping it within things that are publicly accessible. We don't ever want to give a client, you know, fruit of the tainted tree, something that would cause them harm. Um, because the idea with due diligence is to keep your client out of trouble, not to put them in it. 
And so you try to solve these problems in unique ways, depending on each jurisdiction. Yeah. Okay. So I am just trying to imagine knowing all of these things and coordinating a due diligence engagement or even an investigation just with all, with all of the different uh, just knowledge that would be required. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun and just really deeply challenging because sometimes you just like, I know the information is right there. Like, especially for investigations where it's, it, it really is important to get this and you, you know, it's there. You just can't figure out how to get to it in a way that's going to, you know, um, so right now we're looking for a really, really simple. Uh, we're looking for somebody who has been active in a, in a very large fraud, you know, tens of millions of dollars. They're in India and they're being very careful and very intelligent about their profile there. And so we're, we, you know, we're having to just, just spend lots of time and wear out a lot of shoe leather and do this because, because property records are not public and because uh, we can't do, we can't do anything that's going to get it, you know, get our client in trouble or, you know, but we have to try to find this guy. And he's been very, very canny about it. Um, so yeah, it can be really frustrating and, you know, you, you hear, well, you're aware of, I, I think everybody who's working internationally and multi-jurisdictionally has one or two times when they realize that they've, they uh, have inadvertently been given something that is not, is not public domain. Um, and they have to figure out what to, would then do with that. And so you have to then, because it, it changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, um, it changes based on perception. Um, so certain things in, uh, certain things to certain people in the Middle East, um, they may think it's public, it's not actually or something is public and it's not treated as public information. So that gets very blurry and you spend a lot more energy trying to define that, um, I guess, internationally, especially across jurisdictions um, than you would maybe in the United States where things are much clearer. We'll be right back to this interview. At Workman Forensics, we're your modern day Sherlock Holmes. The team at Workman Forensics follows patterns to find money through forensic accounting and fraud investigation services. Using our data sleuth process, we build client cases telling the story of what actually happened. This process serves clients in the best way, whether they are going through a divorce, a partnership dispute, an estate and trust dispute, or a fraud investigation. So what is data sleuthing? Well, after serving clients in this best way for 10 years, we are proud of our technological improvements, making our investigations work similar to that of a manufacturing process. By following a consistent investigative and internal process, our team addresses client concerns in a timely, responsive, and thorough manner. But don't worry, clients don't go through this process alone. We believe communication is vital to the success of an engagement. So each client is guided by a highly trained and specialized expert forensic accountant along the way. And because we think data sleuthing is the best way to investigate financial disputes, we work to train other professionals as well through our investigation games, guided interactive workshops, and our Be A Data Sleuth seminars. To learn more about any of these services or trainings, visit our website, workmanforensics.com. In fact, our website is full of resources for anyone looking to learn more about forensic accounting, fraud investigation, or our data sleuth process. This includes blog posts, free Excel downloads, more podcast episodes, and links to our YouTube channel. 
So if you're looking to get into the investigation industry, or if you've been an investigator for years, we know you'll find something helpful in our free resources. So visit our website, workmanforensics.com. Welcome back to the podcast. Oh yeah, sure. Oh gosh, I didn't even like think about that. What do you do if you get private information that that you maybe thought was public? I mean, that just throws a whole nother wrinkle into the puzzle that you're trying to solve and information you're trying to gather. It does, and, and so we we now have um, you know anytime we work with somebody new that we've we've not done anything with, we now have a, a a process where we have different levels of documents, not just an NDA. But we have a, you know, anti-bribery and corruption document to say this is like, we, we take this really seriously. You cannot, if you're working with us on any case, whether as a translator or whether as a, a local records recovery guy, anti-bribery and corruption is, is paramount. Um, public, non-public, there's a distinction. It's important to us. Please don't ever give us anything that we, you know, we do not want. Our clients do not want. It's not going to help us. It doesn't make you cool. It doesn't make you, you know, special. Um, we don't want to work with you if that's what you give us. Um, and so we have to be really cautious about things that we take in um, and, and make sure that we've done stuff with, you know, a lot of our guys. That's why we work with the same people um, because we've got to cover the world. Why we work with the same people for 10 years. You know, I've had sub, I've had subcontractors or independent contractors that I've worked with for 15 years um, now just because there's safety and, and they know me. They know what I'm after and why and what the limitations are. But when you, by the same token, when you start coming into, you know, these larger investigations, um, uh, attorney-client privilege and disclosure um, across multiple jurisdictions is, that's its own thing that you really, really have to think about. Um, because uh, you're, uh, you may not be able to rely on privilege as an investigator working for a law firm um, on a matter to to inform legal opinion or to to you know help uh, a client understand what they need to do next, you may not be able to rely on on an attorney client privilege um, in the jurisdictions in which you're operating. And so you have to you have to very you have to be very careful about that. Keep that in mind, and make sure you're doing that. You're you're approaching it in an intelligent, and very canny way. Sure. And actually, speaking of um, your contractors and subcontractors things like that. I mean, to cover this much area, I would imagine, uh, and the types of cases and to be able to know some of those nuances, do you work, I mean, you mentioned you work with them, but what does your team look like? And, um, you know, kind of what is your setup or structure that enables you to have this network and resource resources to, to work in all the various places that you do? Um, so, uh, I try to be very honest. I don't, I don't have a cape and I don't have a, a wand with pixie dust. <laughs> we can't be everywhere at once. Um, so, uh, what we've done is, is we've created pockets of expertise, um, and divided our teams up based on, um, so for the process-based due diligence, we have one center for excellence, which we built in Manila, which is a lot of really smart people with a lot of different language sets. And then they act as the central hub and they're divided further down into regional teams. Um, so you'll have, you know, we've got a, we've got an Argentina expert <laughs> in the team who, whose job it is to over, over time and over a series of cases is to become the expert on everything in Argentina. Um, he speaks amazing Spanish. He's, you know, he's awesome. But the, uh, so you, you have to, everybody learns through repetition and, and sometimes through making mistakes so you have to have that that focused repetition on 
or within a team within a, a specific person. Um, when it comes to the more uh, you know complicated investigative assignments, that's when we really have you have to we, we tend to limit that to our really core strength points. So for example, China, um, we have a really good level of expertise and we have the, the, the Shanghai office. It's, you know, the investigations unit there is, is really switched on. They're aware of you know, a whole bunch of things are aware of the limits of what records you can use and what you can't. Um, and so we would feel very comfortable and, and we would be very honest in, in dealing with matters in China. Yes, we've, we've got a really tier one team, you know, global. We, we can go toe to toe with almost anybody else. Um, and that's great. If you come to us and say, listen, you know, we, we really want a, a large complex investigation in Argentina. We've got a great guy who could do records and can do due diligence. And, and he probably could do an investigation in Argentina, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't pitch for it. We wouldn't hold our hand up because it's not a core level of expertise like we have in the Middle East, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and East Asia. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So on this podcast, I really, because we get to talk to so, or I get to talk to so many interesting investigators and um, business owners from now, lots of places uh, here and, and not just in North America. This is really fun for me. Um, but I like to be able to kind of take what we're talking about and put it into a story form or a, a, a case because there's just so many, because of what we do, you know, I think that most of us have some sort of interesting story. And I noticed that on your website, uh, you show all, there's a map and you show all these different places with just like little snippets of cases that you work. So I wondered if there's a case that you can share omitting names and places, of course, that represents the types of investigations that you perform, or maybe one of, um, one that's interesting to you, one that stands out to you. Oh man. Um, too many, they all kind of blur together. And, um, I think we're, 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 we're big enough now where I think we're, we're different. We have our, our own little pockets of expertise within the organization. So some people, um, you know, for some of us, it would be, it would be one investigation that, that is an example of what they do best. And, and for some, it would be the others. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, we do, yeah, sorry, that's really hard. And um, trying to think of a, a good example. That's okay. Um, yeah, let me, let me think about it. Because okay. there's, uh, for some reason, I, I did have something prepared on this. The, uh, I guess a good example would be, so we, we have had a, a, a string of cases recently in Indonesia. Um, where it's very complicated because of COVID. Um, so for those of you that are aware, um, you know, Indonesia is, has at times gone into complete lockdown and then had complete lockdown lift because people have ignored it and then it's gone back in. And, um, and a lot of it has been a, a series of, of related, party, uh, related parties who, were, uh, who are, are fronting for each other um, and are, are causing uh, are basically causing bid irregularities. So they'll they'll club together. Um, they will uh, put in captive bids. They'll then you know win the tender. Um, they'll then work on it together because they've got to segment it out. Or there'll be some you know, kickbacks for their participation in one or the other. Um, and then they'll they'll sort of get caught. They'll reform into another series of companies, or or they'll switch hats in terms of who's 
who's technically up front. Um, so, and by that, I, I'm sorry, that's shorthand, but by that I meant who, who is legally registered as the owner or director of the entities. Um, and then they'll kind of, you know, keep going. And this has been going on for, I want to say 15 years. They've been investigated multiple times. They've been uh, found to you know, be collaborating multiple times. Um, and so they're, they're, they're also wise to the fact that, that they can be investigated and have been investigated in the past. Um, and we've been working on this for, uh, I think, on and off now for 18 months. Um, that's really difficult uh, because you have a environment, you have, you have people who know that, that you're probably going, you or somebody like you is probably going to come take a look at them. Um, they're doing their best to hide. Um, they're hiding in, a, in an urban environment where records are very, uh, are very scattered and not necessarily quite up- updated. There's a lot, of, um, a lot of common information that you would think would be readily available that's not private. And so within this, it's, it's you know, trying, to, trying to organize interviews for this has been uh, sort of epic because we start off with a name, with a, an association to a company that's been shut down, and then we have to, to sort of investigate that out. And so you end up, um, uh, to the extent that's, that's possible within this, again, wearing out a lot of shoe leather. Um, so going, uh, going doing, doing a lot of online research and, and trying to find a, you know, a doctoral dissertation, which may have you know, the individual's employer or previous employer at the time, and then working through that to try to you know, call that person and see if you can find where this person may be working now. Um, and then, you know, so on and so on and so on and so on. And you end up, you know, visiting former residences and current residences and buying a parent's house and then visiting that. And then, um, so that's, that's been a very long drawn out process. And then it's finally gotten to the stage where we've done the interviews and it's very clear that they're all lying, <laughs> but they're all lying. In, and unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, they're all lying in a manner that's, that's deeply uncoordinated. Um, so we can kind of, when we compare side to side during these interviews, um, uh, as some of which are, are having to occur over over um, uh, over Zoom um, with a, a local individual and, and local uh, Bahasa speaking investigator um, leading, and then we, we kind of back them up and, and and then we interpret the transcripts. That has been a really fraught process, and I, I think that's that's kind of our 2020 investigation. Um, that that comes to mind most is uh, it's a really good investigation. I'd be very proud to put that side to side with anybody. It's taken an incredible amount of, of resources and determination to get to the interview standpoint, and then it's taken a lot of um, a lot of effort to stick to it to prove that that these individuals have you know to a reasonable degree of certainty have colluded over the past fifteen years. Um, are you know should should rightfully not be considered um, as you know individuals that you want to do business with in in this contracting context. Um, and so yeah, so I think that's a that's a pretty good 2020 um, example of, of the kinds of work um, in this time. Yeah, and that just made me think of something else with all of the COVID restrictions and, you know, quarantines and things like that being different in all of these countries, like how time sensitive are some of these things? I mean, you've been having to work on this for months, but 
like as far as client expectations, uh, you know, are some of these investigations like they want to, if it's related to bids and letting people bid, I mean, is it like a project that they're trying to get out quickly, uh, you know, or get those bids out quickly so they can start the project? Um, because I would just think that this has definitely delayed the client side of it, you know, what they're hoping to accomplish. So how do how are you managing those client expectations? Probably about like everybody else. Um, so, you know, being very, very clear. Uh, so normally, uh, I mean, we, we, we've just been engaged to do a, uh, an investigation into a series of, of things happening across an industry in Iraq. Um, and we've had to be very clear with the, the client that this would normally take 15 days. Um, but we're going to agree to file an interim within three weeks. We're then going to continue to run this for another, you know, we would like to set the formal final deadline at five weeks from, from conclusion. Um, that's, that's something because, uh, you know, obviously Iraq has, has a series of, of social issues that are happening at the moment. There's a series of, um, you know, COVID has is, is, is really been a bit of a mess. Um, and then just the process of running an investigation in Iraq in general um, can be quite slow. Um, so we're just trying to be very upfront with that um, and talk about the limitations. The only times that it becomes very frustrating is when I forget. Um, you know, for example, in, in India, we're trying to do something. It should be a very quick thing. One of our guys in, in Mumbai can, should be able to get onto a plane, fly to Chennai, sit down with somebody, spend three days, do the in-person interview. He's a very good, excellent interviewer, um, especially for, for fraud. And, and he comes back and, and we can write it up and, you know, two, three days and it's done. Um, you, you're talking five, you know, if you really had to do it in a rush, five working days, um, including flights. Uh, that's not possible. He can't get on a plane um, without a COVID test to fly to Chennai. Um, the guy's not going to want to see him in person because COVID is such an issue in, in, in India and, and around the world and, and here in Dubai. Um, so it's, it's really frustrating because you, you think it, it should take that five days time. And so we're having to extend it out. Um, so our clients are having to selectively you know, decide, I know this is going to take a lot longer. Do we have the ability to either extend our timeline in terms of what we need? Do we need this or, or do we need this as much? Can we go without it? Um, and so that's been, you know, that's been disruptive. I think some clients have just said, no, listen, we, we, we're just going to lose this aspect because we don't, we don't need, we don't have time to do this properly. We don't have to do, you know, whether it's a due diligence because we don't have the ability to do the due diligence properly within a, a usable time frame. we're going to skip this part um, or we're not going to move forward with this deal or, or something, but that's that's certainly managing time expectations has been has been a good lesson from twenty twenty. Yes, for sure. Wow. So before we wrap up, um, you have a podcast, and so I wondered if you might just tell our audience about it because um, I know I hadn't heard of it before we had this conversation, and uh, I think that it would be really interesting to our listeners. Uh, yeah, we'd love to see you there. Um, so it's called the PSA Better Intelligence Podcast. Um, we uh, a lot of it deals with uh, stuff that happens outside of the United States. So, I mean, if this is of interest, uh, so we've talked a bit about sanctions, about uh, 
and how they're going to affect uh, things in the neighborhood. We've talked a little bit about uh, new UK laws because the UK is, is setting up its own um, sanctions regime after Brexit um, or has set up its own sanctions regime after Brexit and, and Brexit, Brexit. And that's impacted multinational companies operating abroad. Um, and then we recently talked to uh, uh, talked about global asset tracing and recovery, which is its own really special subset of, of things that, that um, yeah, and we, we have some really good guests on it. So um, if you're interested, it's hosted on our website, which is uh, psagroup.com um, and uh, on LinkedIn as well. Um, I think one other place, but I'm poorly informed on this one. I think I'm, I'm not, not so switched on to that. Great. Well, you definitely have one more subscriber because this is an area that I know nothing about. I would really like to know more. At our firm, we have our data sleuthing uh, and financial investigations like down to a process. And, you know, when somebody comes in, we can say, okay, we need your bank statements, we need your credit card statements, and we need these things, you know. And then whenever we go to our case planning, we know, okay, we're going to do this analysis, this analysis, this analysis, to at least start with, you know, to see what comes out of that. But man, you were just talking about all of these different challenges and, and, and just working within the different countries. And even it is mind blowing to me. And so I really want to learn more about it. So I'm glad to have learned about your podcast. Michael, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. If any of our listeners would like to connect with you or to learn more about your work, what's the best way to do so? Uh, you can go through your website at uh, psagroup.com or uh, you can reach out to me directly, Michael Olver. Um, at psagroup.com. Well, we will make sure to link to that in the show notes. And thank you so much. No problem. Thank you very much for having us.